It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody, and being with me all week long. Uh, this is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Alan West at the bottom of the hour will find out what's going on in Texas as they're starting to use, get this, shipping containers and putting them on the border wall, stacking them. Uh, where the border walls should have been. Do you understand what, what I'm saying? When they emptied the containers, you know how big they are? So now they're going to put them on flatbeds, and they're streaming into Texas. I want to get his take. I love the idea of doing it because it's not about uh, any type of it's, – it's about making it easier for Border Patrol. A barrier works, whether it's a fence or it's uh, these shafts. Uh, they need something down there because it is totally out of control and getting worse um, we'll talk all about that or what Joe Biden knows. Yesterday, he called the rumor, uh, the story in the Wall Street Journal, that these illegals separated during the Trump administration from their parents. Uh, they said that they're getting $450,000. He says, that's garbage. Uh, yesterday, they tried to fix it. I'm not buying it. Neither are you. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This has deep state written all over it, but in any event, it confirms what we've known all along, uh, which was that dossier was a bunch of baloney. The Clinton campaign and the DNC should be very nervous about that. Uh, That is Mike Lee. Russia, Russia, Russia. Now the media is suddenly not obsessed with Trump linked to Putin because the ruse is being exposed. And I am not exaggerating. Another key indictment from the Durham probe and more and more signs. This all goes back to Hillary Clinton. Number two. The Labor Department Thursday announced it's implementing a new vaccination rule requiring companies with 100 or more employees to get their workers fully vaccinated by January 4th or test them for COVID-19 at least once a week. Fines for not complying could reach nearly $14,000 per worker per violation. Uh, That is the news. Yes, mandate mania hits the private sector after grinding up jobs and livelihoods in the government. The action states are taking on the behalf of free the free American people and some private organizations. They're suing. Number one. I think there were other issues at work in that election. And uh, it remains not for me to make an observation unsubstantiated by data and science and fact. And we'll see what that is. But it was not a good night. Election fallout. The speaker admits the people spoke and it was a bad night for the Dems. But they're spending Palooza uh, pipe dreams. Forge ahead with a vote right now in the House for a bill 2,000 pages long, released last night. Hours later, they're voting. That is absolutely unacceptable and incredible. So let's talk about this. So we know that the Wharton Business School scored what we know of the spending bill on Monday. And they gave it to Joe Manchin. And he called the press conference at 2 o'clock and says it's full of gimmicks. They told me it was $1.75 trillion. I told them that reluctantly would accept $1.5 trillion, but depends what the money is going to. There's certain things I will not sign up for. No way, no how. So then he gives it to the Wharton School, and it's scored at $3.9 trillion. And he realized what they were doing. 
So he pushed back on that. Everything went silent. They were going to have a vote on Tuesday. They didn't. On Thursday, they finished a 2,000-page bill. They released it. We haven't seen it. And now they're voting on it beginning at 8 o'clock today. They think they can get their caucus. A simple majority will do it. But And they also put in the salt tax. They put in child care. I don't know all the details. I, again, I have not seen it. But I will say it's important to tell you that there's a precedent, there's, is a precedent for this. And Obamacare was doing this. They do this. They put this bill out without giving it to the CBO because they don't want the CBO to score it. A lot of it's because they haven't filled it out. They, they haven't filled out all the X's and O's and decided what's in and what's not. I want you to hear, before we go any further, uh, you see Republicans outraged by the fact that this is out there. There's no indication that's going to pass the Senate, by the way. And after this election, you look at moderates like Senator Hassan of, of Hampson, Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire, and you look at people like, I don't know, Mark Kelly, Mark Warner. Kelly is up. He's gotten that seat for a couple of years, and now he's going to have to try to earn it and win an election in a very purple state of Arizona. Does he really want to vote for this spending palooza? Here's what Nancy Pelosi said in 2017. Republicans are facing uh, racing this bill forward uh, before the CBO can truly expose the, uh, uh, the consequences, the catastrophic consequences of their health bill. Forcing a vote without an updated CBO score shows that the Republicans are terrified. They're terrified of the facts of what that COB, CBO report uh, would say. Really? So what does that say about her? If the Republicans were terrified five years ago, what does it say about her that she writes it at night and votes on it in the morning? What does it say about her, the mighty Speaker Pelosi, when people say that she's the strong iron woman and that she's made history? I get it as the first female. And then in the end, her legacy is losing 60 plus seats in order to pass Obamacare and then losing the majority after just a couple of years, hanging around with nothing else to do and then comes back into power and with it loses the majority that she had. Now it's just four seats. And I think she's just months away from retiring again. She'll probably announce it soon. But here is uh, Congressman Jim Banks on what is taking place. Because he was on with Laura last night at about 10.15 Eastern time. And here's what he told us about this bill. Cut 20. The Rules Committee in the House just reported out a new version of the bill just minutes ago. And the House Democrat leadership said, we're not going to vote on it tonight. We're going to vote on it at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. So over 2,000 pages of this latest version. I guarantee you not a single Democrat is going to stay up all night reading it. I guarantee you that no one in Congress can read it. That's like reading the Bible from cover to cover twice uh, to read to read a bill that, that much in detail. So we're going to come back at 8 o'clock in the morning. Why? Why 8 o'clock in the morning, you might ask? Because the Democrats have several flights scheduled to Europe and Asia for Codell's. <laughs> oh my God! Uh, next, next, that they need they need to get out uh, around noon tomorrow because they, they got to make their flights to go to Europe, uh, so they can go on on uh, congressional taxpayer funded trips to get out of town. So that's why we're voting on it at eight o'clock tomorrow morning. Unbelievable! The economy, by the way, uh, added five hundred thirty-one thousand jobs. Uh, in October, this just came in. It drops the unemployment rate to 4.6%, but we still have t- about 10 million jobs open. Now, they predicted 450,000 jobs. They had a horrible job number in September, of, I think 195,000, but we'll see where this goes. The numbers are fine. The jobs are wide open. People aren't working. They're choosing not to work. That's the lazy America Joe Biden has given us, and that's the haphazard way in which we shut things down 
and the haphazard way in which you are open things up. While clamping down on a country already divided and angry, now you're forcing mask mandates and vaccine mandates, gutting FDNY, gutting the NYPD, gutting the, the cops in uh, Chicago who are standing up and fighting back, while also demeaning the law enforcement and these federal workers and the sanitation workers. you got to see the city. It's a flat-out mess. And now there's a pushback with OSHA deciding that companies with over 100 people in them uh, with 100 people in them, got to get by January 4th, have to get vaccinated. If not, they have to submit to a testing. And the testing thing is going to be have to be paid for by the company. A lot coming back from this coronavirus uh, won't have that uh, type of cushion in order to have that testing mandate. But a lot of these governors and the attorney generals are pushing back. How dare you do this to private industry? We have beaten this virus. We've beaten the variant. The numbers are going down every day. The Republican states that allow the greatest freedom have the lowest numbers. Florida has the lowest in the entire country. Your problem is in Michigan and Minnesota. Get it together, Democrats. Here's Ashley Moody, the Florida attorney general. Cut eight. If you look at what the White House chief of staff himself was bragging about when this was first announced, saying this was the ultimate workaround using an OSHA emergency rule. I mean, look at what it means when you try to do an ultimate workaround. That's an ultimate workaround that is unlawful, unconstitutional, completely obliterates the separation of powers. Florida will put up a ferocious fight. Governor DeSantis and I pledged to support Florida's workers, Americans, uh, to be pro-freedom. Uh, and make sure that we're standing up for uh, Florida's sovereignty in court. Yeah, I mean, she's fighting back. You got governors fighting back, pushing back. And I just don't, I, I you know, I'm not a constitutionologist. I haven't spent years uh, teaching law at Harvard. But to me, this feels wrong. Mike Lee is a great legal mind. And he talks about the fines that are accompanied with this if you don't comply can you imagine this? OSHA is going to go down there and do what Cuomo was doing with restaurants, and now they're doing with vaccines, making sure your customers are vaccinated. Cut 12, Mike Lee. They've set these fines at a rate that makes it crippling, that, that really would destroy any business model. $14,000, roughly, per person, per day of violation. These things mount up quickly, and they mount up in such a way that it makes it extortionate, makes it impossible to not comply. That's why the Biden administration is doing it this way. And the Biden administration knows that by the time this works its way through the courts, there's a good chance that the damage might be done and he might have won. But at what cost? 14% of Americans, that's the entire population of America who believes it's okay to make someone lose their job over this. It's not right. It's dumb. It's ridiculous. The numbers are through the roof. It's up to the company. This virus is in the receipt is receding. The president is all over the place. The CDC with their mask mandates and their proclamations makes no sense. All you're doing is having the rest of the country outraged at you and further dividing us when you're on the record telling us all that you can't. Got this? You can't mandate that in America, and now that's what you're doing. While forgetting that your administration is dropping the ball when it comes to inflation, dropping the ball when it comes to these spending programs, dropping the ball when it comes to getting our Americans out of Afghanistan, and dropping the ball when it comes to telling the president what's going on in his own administration. But first... Let me explain to you what's going on with this Russia probe. John Durham dropped another bomb that no, not any network picked up on. It is on the front page of the Washington Post, to their credit. 
Russia, Russia, Russia has been the theme for the four years of the Trump administration. And when the Mueller report fell flat on his face, they still did not stop. Right. They look back to things that they liked in it. Thank goodness William Barr landed that plane. Now we found out it's even worse in my mind than anybody thought. There was an arrest yesterday. It's a Russian. This guy, his name is Dushenko. He is the man who collected the intelligence, and I use that term loosely, that went into the Steele dossier. Remember, the Steele dossier, they thought that uh, Christopher Steele assembled, but he can't go to Russia. Evidently, he's a wanted man there. So he collected information on raw intelligence from this guy, Dushenko, who has now been indicted for uh, lying to the FBI about what he did. Essentially, he hooked up with somebody who's associated with the Clinton campaign called Charles Chuck Dolan and was able to assemble all this phony intelligence. It got information and gave it to the FBI about what Donald Trump was doing with his company in Russia. Correspondence that didn't happen, incidents that didn't took place, but enough to launch a probe because Attorney General Sessions, so weak, allowed this probe to take root. And it plagued the country, not just this administration for three and a half years, but Dushenko, along with Sussman and others, Link back to Hillary Clinton. Remember, Clinton and Sussman are linked. Dushenko and Clinton are linked. They are working to get intelligence for Clinton. Now it looks like the main reason was because they wanted to get heat off her for her email scandal. But Anthony Weiner prevented that from going away. What is stunning that he did it. What is really astounding is that they heated this investigation up after President Trump won. They accuse him of making false statements uh, against Washington Forest-based researcher and Russian emigre, who is a key source for an intelligence dossier that played the essential role in the FBI inquiry. The question is, the FBI knowingly go along with this? Or were they were told these sources were trusted and then went along with it? Either way, it's disturbing that they, they would be that naive to use loose intelligence for this. And when quote, uh, James Comey, think about this, came out and said, I don't know if the stuff in the dossier is true. Mr. President, I got to brief you on this dossier we got a hold of. So what does it all mean? It means four, three people have been indicted, all linked back to the Clinton campaign. And I imagine Hillary directly. Real quick, Jonathan Turley, cut 18. It shows these different layers of connection with the Clinton campaign, particularly this figure who's, who's referred to only as PR Executive One. Now, this is described as someone who was an advisor to Hillary Clinton on her campaigns, was involved in her campaigns, involved in the Democratic Party. But he's actually in Moscow making connections with some of these figures. At one point, he even gives one of these figures the autobiography of Hillary Clinton, uh, with, and written in it is uh, to a true Democrat or something of that sort. Jonathan Turley does not uh, suffer fools or ridiculous investigations or conspiracy theories. Watch this probe. Andy McCarthy is going to be on in a different hour in today's show. Watch this probe. This is big. Just because NBC, ABC, CNN, and MSNBC aren't covering it, it doesn't mean it's not one of the biggest stories of your lifetime. You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. When we come back, I'm going to talk to you. 1-866-408-7669. Back in a moment. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. 
The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. Information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. There's the preponderance of evidence now points towards this coming from the lab, and what you've done is changed the definition on your website to try to cover your ass, basically. You won't admit that it's dangerous, and for that lack of judgment, I think it's time that you resign. Thank you, Senator Paul, and I would like um, to give the time to Dr. Fauci. Yeah, well, there were so many things that are egregious misrepresentation here. Uh, Madam Chair, that I, I don't think I'd be able to refute all of them, but just a couple of them for the listens to hear for. You have said that I am unwilling to take any responsibility for the current pandemic. I have no responsibility for the current pandemic. Yeah, they went back and forth. That was painful. And uh, Fauci, I'm so done with him. And obviously, so was Rand Paul. Harold, listening on WPTF in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hey, Harold. Good morning, sir. I'm retired NYPD, okay. and I'm I'm sick from being at 9/11, and it irritates me. I was offered one tenth of what they want to give illegal immigrants as compensation. Nuts. The victim compensation fund, which was set up by the government, does not pay for PTSD, which I have. So the mean you're telling me you're going to pay some idiot that walked 3,000 miles to our border, brought a kid with him, or who are four kids. And the last time I looked, Mr. Kill Me, when you get locked up, you get separated from your family. Yes. It's that simple. So they, they won't compensate me for these uh, for PTSD, but you're going to give illegal immigrants, you're going to give them money because they have anxiety and depression. Try working at the landfill for 12 hours. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Try working at the Bellevue Mall for 12 hours. Try working at the World Trade Site for 12 hours a day. No days off. Vacations canceled for two years. If anybody has anxiety and depression, it's me. 
And for them to even consider giving these people money, it's an insult. How about the fact that he did not even know? He called the report garbage, and the next day his spokesperson said he supports the payments. And they said that's it could – is that unbelievable? That's par for the course. I don't think he knows what's going on about – you saw him sleeping at the, uh, at the conference the other day. He's taking a nap. This guy's incompetent. He shouldn't even be in office. Well, you're absolutely right. You know what he's taking off, too, with these mandates? He's taking off a lot of minorities because the numbers – me, by the way, um, and but the numbers say that most minorities the most uh, are the most hesitant when it comes to the vaccines. They're the one who put them in office. So who is he? Does he even know what? Who's ma- even making these policies? It, it's incredible. It, it is so mind-numbingly stupid and uh, and and angering. It, I can't even put it into words. Harold, thanks so much. I side with you one hundred percent. I would. I, if he gives this four hundred fifty thousand dollars done, all Democrats should be done. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. From his mouth to, to your, your ears, ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. I can assure you, black voters in Virginia are not shocked by the so-called Yunkin shocker. This isn't about enthusiasm. This isn't about Democrats not doing enough to exercise their base. And this definitely is not about messaging or even about beloved. This is about the fact that a good chunk of voters out there are okay with white supremacy. Let's call a thing a thing. Actually, scratch that. They are more than okay. Uh, That is Tiffany Cross on MSNBC talking about her assessment of the the racial role in the election that even Nancy Pelosi had to admit they did not have a good day. Between the supply chain, between the inflation, uh, between the embarrassment that took place with the president nodding off overseas. Afghanistan started the decline. Uh, this administration has been a cataclysmic disaster, and they paid for it in the off-year election. I want to see what Lieutenant Colonel Alan West against, said about Tiffany Cross and get his assessment. So let's bring him in. He's a Texas gubernatorial candidate, former congressman from Florida, and joins us now. Colonel, was Tiffany Cross on the money? Well, it's good to be with you, Brian, and what an eventful week, and Tiffany Cross was way off the uh, target. But that's what you can expect from the progressive socialist left. Their answer to everything is not to look at themselves, but to continue to double down, triple down, and to attack and denigrate and disparage you know, the folks that did not vote for them. Now, I want you to understand what Tiffany Cross just said. Tiffany Cross just said that the reason why Glenn Youngkin won in Virginia was because of white supremacy, racism, and everything. Then how do you explain the exact same people that voted for Glenn Youngkin, voted for Winsome Sears? Uh, just like my wife, an immigrant legal from Jamaica, served in the United States Marine Corps. How does Tiffany Cross explain the brand-new attorney general-elect of Virginia, who, if I'm correct, is of Cuban descent? Uh, when you think about how Winsome Sears and the new attorney general, who they were running against, first of all, you had a, a herring, I believe his name, the former attorney general, was accused of being in blackface. 
And you also had a lieutenant governor that Winston Sears was running against was under uh, sexual scandal allegations. And so why can't they deal with that? Why can't they talk about Terry McAuliffe getting out there and saying that parents do not have the right to make decisions about the education of their children? So if the left wants to continue to believe that it is everybody else that is wrong, they're setting themselves up for another catastrophic uh, defeat in a year from now. Yeah, no question. Uh, so far, Nancy Pelosi, uh, her interpretation is, I think it's a good idea to vote on both bills. The bipartisan bill, $1.2 trillion that had 69 Senate votes, but she's doing it at the same time of a reconciliation bill that was written last night, 2,000 pages, mm-hmm. and they're forced to vote on it now. What kind of play is this? He used to be in the House. No one's read it. No one's scored yeah. it. I mean, that's exactly what Manchin said. I will not even be a part of anything that's not scored. Well, you're absolutely right. And furthermore, you had those moderate Democrats there in the House, I believe six to seven of them, that said we're not going to support this uh, human infrastructure bill until it has gone through the CBO scoring process. And that obviously did not happen since this bill, which was probably crafted in Nancy Pelosi's office, over 2,000 pages, which no one is going to read by what? Yeah, I mean, now, I mean, it's already supposedly been brought to the floor. Uh, this is the slap in the face to the American people. And so Joe Manchin, as you said, has said, I am not going to pay attention to whatever the House passes. So the Democrats just look in complete disarray. And you talked about a president that fell asleep uh, during a, a summit overseas. How embarrassing for the United States of America. You talk about this thing, uh, $450,000 per uh, illegal immigrant uh, that was, quote, unquote, separated uh, as a family unit. Uh, we want to give them those payments. All of these things are going to continue to build up the uh, the angst that the everyday American person is going to have uh, against the uh, the Democrats. And think about the OSHA uh, mandate uh, regulation that just came out yesterday. And so now we have Americans that are facing losing their employment when yet we have hundreds of thousands of legals crossing the border. They're not being forced to get a jab in the arm. So all of these things are just really building up. But again, like Tiffany Cross just said, the Democrats, the progressive socialists don't look at themselves, the failure of their policies and their positions. They want to continue to attack the American people, not a winning formula. Right. So the president, you mentioned $450,000. So the president was was yelled that question when he was overseas. He didn't answer it, obviously. Mm-hmm. He was going on the escalator. But he had two days to be filled in by it. I don't know. His, his organization is absolutely awful. They're just not efficient. You might not like policies, but when a, when a company— or a administration, uh, whether it's a small mayoral office or a big governor's office or the president of the United States. I thought he could actually run it in an organized way, but time and time again, we see they're all disjointed. Listen to Joe Biden handle this question, which you just brought up. Cut 22. As you were leaving for your overseas trip, there were reports that were surfacing that your administration is planning to pay illegal immigrants who are separated from their families at the border up to $450,000 each, possibly a million dollars per family. Do you think that that might incentivize more people to come over illegally? If you guys keep sending that garbage out, yeah, but it's not true. So this is a garbage report? Yeah. Okay, so... So you heard that, right? Well, that yeah. was true. Uh, we talked to uh, the Wall Street Journal editor, editorial page editor. He got, they got zero pushback from the White House for five days. He gets asked that, had no idea where it came from. Not one person briefing him. Before I play their walk back, what is your assessment when you heard it and for what you know now? 
Well, without a doubt, you just brought up a, a so-called president that is disconnected from reality and not understanding what is out there. Someone, you know, every single day, even when I was a commander in the military, I had an update brief, you know, 10 to 15 minute update brief on what was going to happen today, next uh, 24, 48 hours. Uh, that's what normal presidents do. They get an update brief every day, an intel brief, what have you. But the fact that, you know, the, President Biden is out there and has no clue about what is going on, what is being said. That's very disconcerting. So who are the ones that are making these decisions? Who are the ones that are getting an update brief? Uh, do we have just a, a someone that is a, a puppet? And then who are the puppeteers? Is it Susan Rice? Is it Barack Obama? Is it Ron Klain? Who are making these decisions but not telling the president of the United States of America so he is set up to look like an incompetent, uh, ill-informed individual? Cut 23. But if it's not, if he's not okay with $450,000, how much money is he okay giving? This is something, again, Peter, this is something that the Department of Justice is going to handle. I just laid out what he was thinking and how this is, the process was moving forward. I, the, the DOJ will talk to the specifics and, of and this. And so what changed then from yesterday? You're saying that he would be perfectly comfortable settling with these families who broke the law to come here. But yesterday he said that's not going to happen. I, first of all, let's remember how we got here, how we got to a place where we're dealing with families being separated. This is coming from the last administration, cruel, inhuman, immoral, immoral uh, policies against, against, against just people. Anything else that you would like to know about this, again, I'll, I'll, I'll send you to the Department of Justice. I can't speak to specifics, any more specifics okay. on this. So he said earlier than that, and I'll try to pull it uh, back uh, for another one. He's calling the reports yeah. about the administration paying up $450,000. She came out and said it saves taxpayer. Uh, where she her answer was, well, why don't we just why don't we pay 20 play 21? President Biden is calling these reports about the administration paying up to $450,000 to illegal immigrants who are separated from family members. Garbage. He says it's not going to happen. But the ACLU says that it is. So who is right? So um, if it saves taxpayer dollars and puts uh, the disastrous history of the previous administration's use of zero tolerance and family separation behind us, the president is perfectly comfortable with the Department of Justice settling with the individuals and families who are currently in litigation with the U.S. government. You know, DOJ can obviously speak more to that process. The president was, what he was reacting to uh, was the dollar figure that was mentioned, that you mentioned to him yesterday. He was, so what did she, what did she make better? Uh, she didn't make anything better. As a matter of fact, I'm sitting here and processing the Department of Justice is going to be appropriating and allocating American taxpayer dollars. Uh, Merrick Garland is obviously not going in and talking to the president of the United States of America. I don't know. When have we seen the last cabinet meeting of Joe Biden and his cabinet members? So are they having these discussions, or do we have rogue uh, agency heads like Merrick Garland, who did come out and say that they were going to use the FBI against parents as domestic terrorists. I don't know that Joe Biden agree with that as well. But understand this, the, the problem that we have at our border is that kids are being used, kids are being trafficked. Here in Texas, 
We're the we're the number one state in the United States of America for human and sex trafficking. Dallas and Houston, top two cities in the country for sex trafficking. We need to check. We need to verify uh, if these are the parents, if this is a family unit. You know, once upon a time, we used to do those on-the-spot DNA tests. But right now, we see kids being recycled to bring adults into the United States of America illegally under the guise of being the family unit. And we also know that a lot of these kids are being trafficked. And you saw those airplanes that landed in uh, Westchester County in New York and Jacksonville, Florida. And then also in Tennessee, and if I'm correct, we just had a, a death uh, occur at the hands of a, an illegal immigrant minor yep. who uh, was an adult, was not a minor. And guess how he got to Jacksonville, Florida, off an airplane from Texas uh, to there. So we've got a problem, and you know, four hundred, four hundred fifty thousand dollars, no amount of money going to people that. Can, broke our laws to come here legally is a solution to that. Colonel West, uh, by the way, he lied about his age. He stole somebody else's ID, said he was 17. He was in his 20s. And then he goes and kills his sponsor family. Before he did that, he picked up the phone, called back to Honduras to say, they're treating me like a son. And then he kills them all. Uh, And then he gets caught and he goes to juvenile uh, detention, believe it or not, after a murder. And then they find out his real uh, his real age. Think about that. A father of four murdered when he took in a sponsored kid that we didn't even know about. The governor wasn't even informed of. And he might have been sitting next to your somebody's daughter in high school pretending to be a student. Unbelievable. Colonel, what they're doing now at the southern border, I want to get your take on. They're beginning to drop containers off, stacking them up at the yep. border because you guys can't get permission to build a wall. I love the idea. Do you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have to look at all the means by which we can do what the Constitution allows us to do in Article 1, Section 10, Clause Number 3, is to protect ourselves from this invasion. That's exactly what has happened. That's the language that the Founding Fathers used. And the Guarantee Clause of the Constitution, Article 4, Section 4, says that one of the responsibilities of the federal government is to protect every state in this union from said invasion. And so we have got to step up as states and do more to make sure that We don't allow what just happened to that father in Jacksonville, uh, Florida, to happen to any other American. We are putting the safety and security uh, of Americans, Texans especially, that are dealing with this every day on the front line in danger. Uh, Let me just tell you, last week I was in Kenny County, which is right there next to Valverde County, Del Rio, with Sheriff Brad Coe. We were out from 1130 to 2 o'clock in the morning. Kenny County is 1,400 square miles. 16 miles of Kenny County run along the Rio Grande River. Sheriff Brad Coe only has six sheriff's deputies. That's how dire the situation is here. Unbelievable. And, of course, the vaccine mandate's really helping, isn't it? Oh, the vaccine mandates are not helping at all. And again, the hypocrisy is that Joe Biden is telling legal law-abiding Americans, you either get this jab in the arm or you don't get the opportunity to work. But no one's sticking anybody in the arm that's coming across the border illegally. And I guarantee you that the young illegal immigrant that lied about his age uh, and killed an American citizen, he hadn't gotten a jab in the arm. True. Uh, Colonel, uh, how, how do we get how do we support your run for governor? Well, I appreciate it very much, Brian. You go to west at the number four texas.com, west for texas.com. And, and I just want to say real quick, I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. I used to sell Cokes at the old Atlanta Fulton County Stadium at the Braves game. So go Braves. So proud of them and winning the World Series, especially when Major League Baseball took away the All-Star game from the city of Atlanta. Yeah, it's a total, um, it's a total uh, let's go Brandon moment. Yep, it is. Right. Uh, thanks so much, Colonel. 
God bless. Take care. 1-866-408-7669. Back with you calls. It's Brian Kilmeade. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News Podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Last night, thank to everyone in Staten Island for coming out to support President Freedom Fighter. It was the first stop. Everyone was thankful uh, that we put this. Uh, it's great Barnes & Noble right in the mall. I didn't feel guilty at all having you come out on a Thursday because there was so much more for you to do, restaurants and shopping. It was amazing, and I got a little bit of luck. I had to interview Dana White, the CEO of UFC, at 4 o'clock. I uh, got in a car at 4.30. I thought I was dead to get there by 6, but I was able to get there like 5.59 and I was able to meet a whole bunch of people. Frank Morano, too, of uh, WABC, one of our great affiliates, was great, as well as uh, Tunnel Towers founder, Frank Siller, was there. And go to T2T.org and support him. He lives over in Staten Island, uh, and I appreciate it. The President Freedom Fighter, if you guys want it signed and don't want to wait for your gifts to stuck on a barge in China, uh, just go to BrianKillMe.com. It goes to my local It'll go to my local bookseller, and I come in and I personalize it all there. Uh, I understand there's a lot of them, so I appreciate it. Also, Sunday, uh, Sunday, November 7th at 10 o'clock, there is a special. The President of Freedom Fighter comes to TV on Fox News, uh, so we want to see. Uh, in fact, do we have a clip of that? We can go. Let's listen. You know, Lincoln, you know, first off, most Americans had not seen Abraham Lincoln. They might have heard about him. Uh, but they hadn't seen him. And when he walks in, there was this kind of disappointment in the room. Here's this kind of awkward, gangly guy. He's got this ill-fitting suit. Uh, and, uh, and he spoke with this kind of reedy voice. We kind of have this imagination. He's got this sort of great theatrical voice. No, right? And he had this accent, you know, this kind of frontiersman accent, which for New Yorkers kind of doesn't, you know, uh, give much credit to his argument. But it was the argument when they actually started hearing the words and how he was framing the issue of slavery that people thought, wow, he's got a handle on where this country needs to go and the Democrats have something to worry about. Right. He was going to be the first first Republican nominee. And he went back to the founding fathers and found out what they said about slavery. Frederick Douglass would have a series of great speeches there. And it's right there, Cooper Union, right in downtown Manhattan. And you'll see some of that and get a little bit of history and perspective on today's news and why Condoleezza Rice was so on the money with her comments last week. So uh, that's very important. Meanwhile, a couple of things are happening at the same time. The new job numbers are in, and they're good. 500-plus uh, thousand, 531,000 jobs added. Unemployment drops to 4.6. They were supposed to add 450,000. They also revised our previous, previous months a few hundred thousand. So that's good news for the country. We still have about 10 million jobs that are open. 80% of the jobs have come back since the pandemic. And now the, the administration is doubling down. The Democratic Party is tripling down. And they're trying to get both bills, the uh, reconciliation bill, which is worth $1.75 trillion without being scored by the CB, uh, CBO. We don't know what's in it. I only know some things that have been added back, and that's the salt tax, which means that high-tax states can write off their state tax uh, if you make under $80,000. That was a pay-for. Now you've added more to the debt and the negativity to this bill. Uh, and we also know they added uh, child care, excuse me, uh, paid leave. And they'd add paid leave. Even if you're out of a job, they will pay you if you have a kid. 
Now, that may sound great, but it's thoroughly unavoidable because we just can't write checks on no money and go flying into deficit on school lunches, preschool, community college. It doesn't work. But that's what's going to be jammed down our throats. And the only thing that's stopping us uh, from total uh, financial and economic annihilation is, I think, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. But evidently, Cinema is starting to give in a little bit. My hope is that Warner will step up and say, we just got to do the one bill. Hey, go to BrianKilmeadShow.com, order the podcast, and always keep it here. Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, it's going to be a great hour. Dr. Marty McCary, uh, he'll tell us the latest on kids' vaccines, the mandates, how you think it works, and why natural immunity is not a factor, even though he's been begging for doctors in the medical community to do just that. And we're going to be joined uh, at the top of the hour with somebody uh, very special. We always love Andy McCarthy. He did a great column today about the Titanic news regarding the Russia investigation. No, not on Trump, about what went into hyping up and the hoax that went into the Russia investigation, which has every network avoiding it. We'll discuss that while the other breaking news, we've had a 400, excuse me, we thought we were going to add 450,000 jobs. We added 531,000 jobs. That's good news. The unemployment does drop. But uh, those people not working, still about 10 million uh, jobs need to be filled, and about 7 million are not working. I'm not sure that math works for me. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This has deep state written all over it, but in any event, it confirms what we've known all along, uh, which was that dossier was a bunch of baloney. The Clinton campaign and the DNC should be very nervous about that. Uh, That is Senator Mike Lee. Russia, Russia, Russia. Uh, Now the media is suddenly not obsessed with the Trump-linked Putin because the ruse is being exposed. Another key indictment from the Durham probe and more and more signs that it all goes back to Hillary Clinton. Number two. The Labor Department Thursday announced it's implementing a new vaccination rule requiring companies with 100 or more employees to get their workers fully vaccinated by January 4th or test them for COVID-19 at least once a week. Fines for not complying could reach nearly $14,000 per worker per violation. Unbelievable. Mandate mania hits the private sector after grinding up jobs and livelihoods in the government. The action states uh, the action states are taking on behalf of the free American people. I'd love it. Number one. I think there were other issues at work in that election, and uh, it remains not for me to make a, a, an observation unsubstantiated by data and science and fact, and we'll see what that is. But it was not a good night. Uh, Yeah, of course it wasn't a good night. Election fallout. The speaker admits the people spoke at and it was a bad night for the Democrats. But their spending palooza is taking place right now. They are voting right now on two bills. One we know, the other one they wrote and released at about 10 p.m. Eastern time last night. It's sickening. 
uh, and we'll see if they can get all the Democrats. They have very little margin for error. I believe just four seats and no idea if Joe Manchin's going to just cave. I don't think so, despite being screamed at yesterday and harassed by the Green Army. Uh, let's bring in Andy McCarthy. Andy, another indictment came down in the Russia probe. And as you write, this is bigger than big. Yeah, I think so, Brian. It really does show that where Durham is going is that the Trump-Russia collusion narrative was really a fabrication of the Clinton campaign. Uh, They put it together. They dreamed it up. Then they peddled it to the media and to the FBI. uh, And that enabled the campaign both to frame Trump as a Putin puppet and to tell the public that uh, he was under investigation, which was a big thing for them in the campaign. Igor Dushenko uh, joins Michael Sussman in being indicted uh, for in this investigation. This guy is the one who put together the intelligence, if I could call it that, that went into the Steele dossier. He was the source. And he said this was just a collection of hearsay that went into this report that Christopher Steele went and tried to sell to the media and to Democratic lawmakers before the election. Yeah, and the shocking thing about it, Brian, is when you read this indictment, two things leap out at me having looked at this for a long time. First is... The information not only was preposterous, it would have been very easy to knock down if the FBI had done their normal investigation. But one of the facts that's not being stressed enough, I think, in the coverage is that the indictment says that the FBI first interviewed Danchenko, who now, let's understand, he's the main source of the information for the dossier that they rely on in court to get these surveillance warrants. They don't interview him until January of 2017, by which time they're getting the second warrant because they've already gone to court in October of 2016. And what they bring to court when they go to court is what's called a verified application, which means they're supposed to corroborate and verify the information that they allege in it before they go to the court, not you know uh, months later when they're getting their second 90-day warrant. So that's one thing. And I guess the other thing to stress is It's remarkable reading this indictment how much connection there is between Clinton people and Russians. And you wouldn't have been able to pull this off. That is this portrayal of Donald Trump as the guy who's got the the troubling Russian connections had it not been for the very extensive Russia connections that the Clinton people had uh, and, and that you know, come through in this indictment. So he's just walking slowly towards Hillary Clinton. So tell me about the other two indictments and how they led him to, and, and what Dushenko means in relation to them and Chuck Dolan Jr. Well, the, the first indictment, remember, was this FBI lawyer. Um, who Michael Sussman. The fact that, uh, right, that they didn't tell the FISA court ultimately that oh, – I'm sorry, no, Sussman's the, the second indictment. The first indictment is this guy, Kleinsmith, who's the FBI lawyer, and he's the one who – uh, basically, they end up concealing from the FISA court the fact that Carter Page had actually been a CIA uh, source. The second indictment was this guy, Michael Sussman, who was a lawyer for Perkins Coey, who is one of the ones who brings this uh, Trump-Russia information to the FBI. In this instance, he was trying to uh, bring information that suggested there was a, a conduit namely the Alpha Bank, which is an important Russian financial institution, 
that was uh, serving the purpose of connecting the Trump people uh, and the Kremlin so that they could uh, communicate with each other. That was the allegation. And now you have this Danchenko indictment. Danchenko is the main source for Christopher Steele, and it turns out that he's getting information from a longtime Clinton insider, this guy Charles Dolan, who worked on President Clinton's campaigns in 92 and 96, worked on Hillary's failed campaign in 2008, and was an advisor on the uh, 2016 campaign. And as it turns out, he's giving information to Danchenko because he's got a lot of Russia contacts. Um, Danchenko is basically dressing up the information, exaggerating it here and there, and he's giving it to Steele, and Steele puts it in the Steele dossier, which they end up giving to the FBI, which uses it in the FISA court. So the whole thing is just mind-boggling. Dushenko worked for Fiona Hill. <laughs> yeah, this is really, uh, you know, Fiona, so Fiona Hill, not only does Danchenko work for her, let's remember now, Fiona Hill is at the Brookings Institution uh, she was on Trump's National Security Council. She ends up being an important witness in the first Trump impeachment regarding Ukraine, which, by the way, doesn't have anything to do with the Steele dossier. Yep. And no information from Fiona Hill is in the Steele dossier. We should be clear on that. But she's she's I mean, there's some terrible coincidences for her. Um, she, number one, is the one who introduces Danchenko to Steele. Now, she's not involved in their activities together, but she does introduce them. So that's how these two guys, um, you know, get together. And, uh, um, you know, it's unfortunate for her that, you know, she's in the middle of what turns out to be the Democrats' first attempt to undermine Trump and get him impeached. And then she's a major witness in the second, you know, the, the actual first impeachment over Ukraine. So I, she's not really – a guilty figure here in the sense that she did anything to promote this, you know, cockamamie Trump Russia story. And I think she testified at the uh, impeachment when she was asked about this, that it, you know, it seemed like a bunch of nonsense to the, uh, uh, the dossier. And she was quite right about that. So basically what they did is they concocted this whole thing and the whole Trump bank to this alpha bank was a marketing. It was a marketing line. There was no hotline from the alpha bank right. to Russia. And this guy Sussman was feeding information to uh, uh, to investigators. He was feeding information to the FBI. He was feeding information to the press, perhaps. And he said he did it voluntarily. He's a good American. But he's got direct. He never said about his hooks to the Democratic Party and to the Hillary Clinton campaign. So he lied, and everyone's like, "What's a big deal? Just a little lie. What's a big deal?" So all these people, all these stories are feeding on each other, and they act like they're double and triple checking sources. No, it's the same source cycling around. Yeah, and and the information isn't accurate, so they're cycling around nonsense. But I think the thing, Brian, that Durham's going to have a big problem with. Uh, I don't know that it, it's not fatal to his case, but he's going to have to negotiate his way around it. And that is the sense that you get from the Sussman indictment and the Danchenko indictment is that the FBI was duped here. And everything we know about this investigation is that to the extent that they were pushing, you know, Trump is corrupt information on the FBI, they were pushing on an open door. And in a lot of ways, there was such hostility to Trump in the FBI that it seems like this story 
as they got it was too good to check. Uh, because what happens, obviously, with Danchenko is they don't even interview him until they're getting their second FISA warrant, and they're supposed to do that before they start. But I think they just had it in their minds that Trump was a bad guy, and they figured that eventually the evidence was going to catch up with their predisposition about Trump, and they just didn't do a competent job of checking the information. Because when you read this indictment, this information – not only is complete nonsense on its face, it becomes very clear that if the FBI had spent 10 minutes with Dolan or 10 minutes with Danchenko, they would have realized that, you know, the stuff that they're relying on in court is just BS. Yeah, I would think so. Uh, the FBI has no problem doing that. So just keep in mind, too, where does Glenn Simpson fit into all this? So. Simpson runs this outfit called Fusion GPS, and it's Fusion GPS that recruits steel to do this Russia project, the, the digging of dirt uh, on Trump with respect to Russia. And then steel basically recruits and relies on Danchenko. So Simpson is the one – Simpson is like right in the middle of this. Simpson's the one who gets steel, who gets Danchenko. And on the other end, Simpson basically talks Perkins Coey, who is Clinton's lawyers, into recruiting them, retaining them to do this anti-Trump project. Uh, so he's, uh, you know, he's the man in the middle of everything. So you think uh, there's no way this is happening without Hillary Clinton being read into it, in my humble opinion. Isn't that where this is heading? Who told you? Who told you? Who told you? Who told you? Who paid you? What was the reason? Member, Glev, uh, Member Christopher Steele said it was always assumed that everybody knew that we were working for the Clinton campaign. Yeah, and I think we and we also already know that the you know the Clinton campaign was putting a lot of information out through Robbie Mook and Jake Sullivan that was uh, you know stressing this idea that Trump was in cahoots with Russia. So it, it seems that this was a this was a Clinton fabrication through and through from the beginning. And I think Durham's theory appears to be that the Clinton people manufactured this political narrative to attack Trump. Uh, they concocted it through people that they retained, namely Fusion GPS and the people we just discussed. And then they used their agents, namely Fusion GPS and their lawyers at Perkins Coie, to peddle the information to the media and to the FBI. And that enabled the campaign not only to portray Trump as a stooge of Putin, but also to suggest to the country that Trump was under investigation. That is that the FBI was so concerned about this, about Trump being a clandestine agent of Russia, um, that the, the government was looking at this carefully. And they thought that would be very valuable for them uh, in terms of a campaign theme. Uh, so did, would you – Is what's the most enlightening thing for you? You knew this storyline. I mean I feel as though the storyline right. is getting confirmed for you. But what is surprising you? The the thing that's really dismaying, Brian, is that they don't interview Danchenko. The FBI doesn't interview Danchenko until they're already in court getting the second warrant. And you know what I always what I told people at the beginning years ago when this story first surfaced, I poo pooed it because I said, you know, what you're going to find is the FBI would never have wholesale bought this steel dossier. 
What's going to have happened is the FBI is going to have read the Steele dossier and picked out three or four facts that are important, and then they're going to have gone to school on them and corroborated them before they ever used them in the FISA court. So it turns out that what the FBI did was exactly what I said they would never do, which is that they bought this thing wholesale. They never investigated it. They never verified it. They used it in court to get surveillance warrants on people, which is a, a really intrusive thing to do. And then they didn't try to corroborate it until they were after until after they were in court. And it's really dismaying because the information is preposterous on its face. If they had done a borderline competent job of interviewing people like they do in like 99 percent of their cases, uh, this thing would never have seen the light of day because it would have been shot full of holes in the first 10 minutes. Yeah, but it wasn't, and the country suffered. I don't care who you voted yep. for. The country suffered. Our policy suffered. It was a national embarrassment. And the things that we could have been doing instead of this, spending money, doing probes, instead of getting legislation and securing the country, uh, and maybe focusing on Afghanistan. Andy McCarthy, read his column today. It is out. Uh, you are writing today in the New York Post. Uh, I appreciate it, Andy. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Brian. You too. You got it. one 408 7669 That is a really big deal. Back in a moment. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis. Because, man, do you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. America, as you heard the president say before, is a great country. Uh, and, uh, and great countries are honest, right? They have to be honest with themselves about the history, which is good, and, and the bad. And our kids should be proud to be Americans after learning that history. But we also need to be honest here uh, about what's going on here. Republicans are lying. They're not being honest. They're not being truthful about where we stand. And they're, and they're cynically trying to use our kids as a political football. So we got to be honest here. And they're not being honest. They're being incredibly dishonest. Uh, that's unbelievable. This Karine Jean-Pierre, uh, the White House, in for Jen Psaki, who's got the coronavirus, being honest. We all know what's going on here. We see the curriculum, and they're being honest. It just It's in black and white, pun intended. Here's Shelby Steele on that thought. Cut three. That classic liberalism they see as, uh, as infringing on their power. If they can suspend that liberalism, uh, then they have the power to dictate what goes on. You saw Terry McAuliffe talking about uh, one high school that had 80 percent white teachers. We needed to change that. We needed to go in, disregard their rights, uh, and, and cut that down to 50 percent. Uh, well, it's that kind of cold, inhuman calculation as a pretext for racial harmony uh, that's ex- that is extremely destructive. So we'll see. Game on. Republicans lied. That's how they did so well when it comes to CRT. Every mom lied. All those moms upset about all those kids, all different ages. Liar, liar, liar. Nice try. America's not buying it. They're done with it. Dr. Marty McCarry next. 
new from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. You don't want to mandate and try and force anyone to take a vaccine. We've never done that. No, I don't think it should be mandatory. I wouldn't demand to be mandatory. Uh, there will be no federal vaccinations database and no federal mandate requiring everyone to obtain a single vaccination credential. That was then, and this is now. Mandates are plenty. Now those people with over 100 employees will have to get a test. They say there's a test, but I don't know if there's financing for it, or be fined something like $13,000 every time you are found in non-compliance. And we know about the thousands of people that have been left the medical profession because they didn't want to get vaccinated. They don't take in natural immunity. And on top of that now, we have firefighters. We have cops, sanitation workers who don't want to get the vaccination, and now soon-to-be corrections who don't want the vaccination, or 84% do, 15% don't, they're going to lose their jobs and can't collect unemployment. Does that seem fair? Dr. Barney McCarty is uh, all over this issue. He's a surgeon and a professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. McCarty, was the old Joe Biden right or the Joe Biden uh, of today right? Well, people feel that they've been betrayed. You know, this was a promise from every one of our top health officials in the government and the president. So this damages public trust. And if you look at how far we've come, you know, it went from, hey, there's going to be a vaccine available for kids. It'll be an individual choice to San Francisco just announced their plans to make vaccinations mandatory for kids five through 11 if they want to go to any public setting. We've come a long way from our original goal. Yeah, I mean, think about this. You know they're going to start mandating the kids. And the tragedy is, according to the CDC, 42% of kids 5 through 11 already had COVID. That was back in September at the beginning of the Delta wave. Now it's upwards of 50%. It's north of 50%. So there's going to be unintended harm with taking people already immune and telling them you have to be immunized. What should what should they be doing? So they're frustrated because more people are unvaccinated, even though 70 percent of the country is fully vaccinated. That's eligible. And uh, the number is even higher if the, with people who have gotten a single shot. Well, our problem is not a 24 year old healthy person or a professional basketball player or athlete who is not vaccinated. No professional athlete that I know of has ever died of covid anywhere in the world. If you hear of one, let me know. That's not our problem. So when they have this thermometer gauge, like it's a fundraising campaign of a university, like we got to get to 100%, you're ignoring the fact that the risk is not equally distributed in the population. The seniors are now protected by and large, and we've got drugs that make COVID death really something that should never happen. We just need the FDA to move a little quicker. So we got about 1,100 deaths a day, down 23% over the last two weeks. I'm looking at the shade map in the New York Times. Uh, the whole South is basically way out of the woods. There's the, so the state that's doing the best is Florida. It's the upper Northwest. So why aren't the policies responding to how the Delta variant is receding? <laughs> well, I'm hearing, Brian, from 
public health academics that they really are just coming right out now unabashedly and saying we should never get back to normal. You know, we need to keep restrictions, uh, distancing masks, basically in perpetuity. And I get it. You might have, you know, a 2% reductions in viral transmission rates for the rest of humanity, but are we going to let f fires burn out of control and 911 response times go up? And this pandemic has been great for the wealthy, Brian. Most people are re renovating their homes and making money on the stock market. Half of America lives paycheck to paycheck, and they have borne the brunt of these excessive restrictions. So now we got something else on the horizon, and it's this pill, this Pfizer pill. How are they going to regulate a pill? No one should be dying of COVID right now in the United States. Between all the therapeutics that are already on the shelf and these new pills, the new one announced today by Pfizer cuts death and hospitalizations in COVID patients by 89%. The other one, Molnupiravir by Merck, no one's ever died who's gotten the medication, cut deaths to zero. Now that one, the FDA is gonna get around to uh, having a conversation about it on the 30th of this month. And around Christmas, we'll see it out there. And the other one, this, this one announced today by Pfizer will probably take about two months, too long during a health emergency. But when you talk about Pfizer having a pill, you can't regulate it. You don't have to go to a doctor or a clinic and fill out a form. You could just take that at home. They're not going to like that because then you have to trust somebody and they don't trust anybody. <laughs> the paternalistic culture is heavy right now. But these new drugs by Pfizer and Merck, you'll need a prescription and so you'll go to your doctor and they'll write your prescription for it. That'll, that'll be one answer. Uh, would, so are you for, first off, what are the facts? If I am not vaccinated and I don't have natural immunity, am I, is it easier for me to get it than you who's vaccinated? If an unvaccinated person is a little more susceptible. Now, we don't know. You might, the virus jumps into your nose cavity at the same frequency. But when you're vaccinated, you fend it off a little better. You're less likely to test positive, And your um, window of being contagious is more narrow. You might be contagious, say, for one day if you're vaccinated, as opposed to three days if you're not. So if I say I had natural immunity and I'm not going to get vaccinated, we still can't get anybody to pay attention to that on the national level, correct? Now, we're actually moving backwards on natural immunity because even though 90 different studies have shown that it's effective and the largest study worldwide that is 27 times more effective than vaccines, the only two studies to the contrary are jerry-rigged studies the CDC has put out with horrible methodology. They should be embarrassed. They would never survive peer review at any medical journal except the fact that we have uh, group think right now and they're just, you know, people are, are political and saying we're going to swear our allegiance to the vaccinate every human being edict and therefore we need to dispel natural immunity because it threatens that White House edict. So those studies are, are, are tragic and those are both put out by the CDC. I put out heavy critiques of them on Twitter. Right. Uh, so I know see you, Dr. McCurry. I want you to make heads or tails of this exchange with Dr. Walensky and Senator Burr. Cut seven. I think our guidance is very simple when it comes to vaccination. It has nothing to do with whether you've been infected or not. We recommend everybody in this country be vaccinated with either two doses of a Pfizer or Moderna vaccine or a single dose of a Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It couldn't be more simple. Everyone should get vaccinated who is eligible for, to be vaccinated. I'm not asking a question. I'm making a point. Senator, that, is so confusing, that is so confusing that there's, that there's every reason to believe that the American people can look at this and say, 
what in the hell are you guys doing? What are you judging this based on? It's not common sense, and it's certainly not science. Your stated policy suggests that you put more value on natural immunity. And he goes on. He's frustrated. It doesn't make any sense to him. What about you? Well, I agree. I agree. And it doesn't make sense with other medical practices like the chickenpox vaccine. The CDC says on their website, don't get it if you already had chickenpox because you've got natural immunity. It says that right on their website. So what they're doing is cherry picking data and people see the dishonesty of it. Let me give you an example. When the data from Israel came out on boosters in people over 65, that was a tenfold reduction in hospitalizations. Dr. Fauci immediately lit up and called it, quote unquote, dramatic data and wrote up a lot of policy to push the boosters. When the data out of Israel, the same country, and the health ministry said natural immunity is 27 times more protective than vaccines, he ignored it, never talked about it. That's the cherry picking and the disingenuous nature of this. I want you to hear more about this exchange, cut six. It's confusion when somebody has to be vaccinated though they've got natural immunity. The CDC website currently says that if you have had COVID in the last 90 days and you leave the country and you come back in, you're not required to be tested before you come to the United States. I'll leave on Sunday. I have double vaccination. I have a booster. Next Thursday in London, I'll be required to have a COVID test in London before I can fly back into the United States. The CDC's own website puts more value on natural immunity than they do on two vaccine shots and a booster shot. But yet they won't acknowledge it in policy. I've had senior health people tell me in public health, look, Marty, yeah, natural immunity works, but we got to keep the message simple. And this kind of paternalism is what people are revolting against. They're revolting against it everywhere and in elections. If we're China, where you have a paternalistic government where that says kids can only play video games for two hours a week, then it makes sense. Just, you know, everyone follow along like a robot. But if we believe in using our brain and thinking, uh, then we've got to look at the data. And they're being very dishonest about looking at the data. So yesterday there was exchange with Anthony Fauci, and it's definitely personal, and Senator Rand Paul, because we wanted to find out the origins of this virus. This administration is uh, not even curious uh, where this virus came from. They're making a, a they did this investigation, which was inconclusive. Uh, but then it was time for these two to go at it. Listen to this exchange on gain of function. Cut 15. There's the preponderance of evidence now points towards this coming from the lab. And what you've done is change the definition right. on your website to try to cover your ass. Basically, you won't admit well, that it's dangerous. And for that lack of judgment, I think it's time that you resign. Thank you, Senator Paul. And I would like um, to give the time to Dr. Fauci. Yeah, well, there were so many things that are egregious misrepresentation here, uh, Madam Chair, that I, I don't think I'd be able to refute all of them. But just a couple of them for the listens to hear for. You have said that I am unwilling to take any responsibility for the current pandemic. I have no responsibility for the current pandemic. Yeah, uh, directly, but there doesn't seem to be a big curiosity to find out where it started, which I think would allow us to be able to stop it. <laughs> they just they just don't talk about it. And you had every journalist in the United States stop what they're doing and pivot to study COVID. And no one looked under the, the rug to see what happened and where it came from. We got two studies going on at Johns Hopkins right now. 
One is looking at where the NIH spent their money last year. Less than 5% went to COVID. And most of that was health disparities wow. in COVID and not transmission rates. Um, and then we've got a study looking at how China is systematically building up their virology labs. And we're doing a big study on that. And finally, we're doing a study on natural immunity since the government's not doing it. Uh, it seems like you got a series of things that we all have to address, but it's pretty amazing. Uh, Dr. McCarry, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Good to be with you, Brian. And lastly, I'm sorry, before you go, for the, for the parents listening right now wondering if their child should get vaccinated, I know the good news is a lot of these shots are going to be in doctor's offices, uh, but I'm wondering what you would tell them. Well, 143 kids over two years have died in that 5 to 11 age group. And we think those are kids with comorbid conditions. If they have one, get a vaccine. And if you're healthy, I would say you probably don't need it. Half of kids have natural immunity. You could certainly test for it. If you're concerned, go ahead and get it. I would do one dose or space out the doses by three months. What, uh, what do you say to parents that really want the masks off the kids and the other parents who say, they, I want your kids to have masks? You know, the masks are an arbitrary poker chip in this negotiation with policymakers. The kids shouldn't be wearing masks in areas with low transmission rates anyway. So it's, it's a non-medical issue. It's a purely political token to say, hey, if you do the vaccine, you can take off your mask. That's, that's not a medical argument. That's a political argument. All right, Dr. Bakari, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. All right. Last night, I just want to salute you guys because you came out in Staten Island. It was great to see everybody. Also, Dr. Uh, Dr. Uh, Frank Stiller came out. He's the CEO and founder of Tunnel to Towers. Uh, of course, he is Mr. Staten Island. Um, so is his brother. So he came out, saw some great people, great fans, saw some very unique sweatshirts. Also, Frank Morano came out, unbelievable, knowing that he had to be up. He's after, uh, working after midnight, then does another hour in the morning. Uh, he's doing all types of stuff with Joe Piscopo still. So he came out there, and uh, it was great to see Matt who's running things for the station. I would also uh, like to tell you that 10 o'clock Sunday night, February 7th, I'm going to do The President and Freedom Fighter. It's a special on television. It's based on my book, The President and Freedom Fighter. Same type thing. We look at Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and the battle to save America's soul. Uh, so go to briankillme.com. And you could find out where I'll be. Today, I'm going to be in Lawrenceville. It's going to be right outside, right outside Atlanta at the Books A Million. And I'll be there around 6 o'clock at Planes Cooperating. But people make reservations so we know you're there in this COVID environment. Then I'm going to go to the Kentucky Film Fest, excuse me, Kentucky Book Festival. That'll be Saturday. I'll be able to give a presentation there and sign books uh, if you need. And then at West Virginia at 4 o'clock, we got word that governor will be there. The attorney general will be there of, of West Virginia. He's a big, a big history buff, too. He owns Greenbrier, does Governor Justice. We did a big feature there on what made America great, the Fox Nation special, who edited this all together. So it's going to be a great night. I hope to see everybody in and around there in Charleston, West Virginia. But you got to get tickets. BrianKillMe.com. It's sitting right there. And then especially for WDBO uh, listeners, uh, viewers of Fox News, Go out if you're in Orlando. I'll be there November 21st. It's the biggest theater we have, so there's still tickets left. And I'll be able to talk about America from, from, the, from the ground up. George Washington, Secret Six, Thomas Jefferson, the Tripoli Pirates, Andrew Jackson, the Miracle of New Orleans, Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers, as well as the president and freedom fighter. And most importantly for me, uh, talk a little bit about sports, my sports background, a little bit about career. But I will end up uh, taking your questions, and it's going to be great. Uh, and we'll see about airing that on Fox Nation. So thanks so much uh, for listening. Be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Brian Kilmeade Show.
Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. 55% of Americans say that they would hook up with someone who looks like their favorite celebrity. Yeah, so let's get this straight. People would hook up with a hot person who looks like a hot person. Wow. (laughs) Groundbreaking survey. Fascinating. The majority of Americans would hook up with someone who looks like their favorite celebrity. Although I do have some bad news for you. Most of your favorite celebrities just want to hook up with Pete Davidson. (laughs) Yeah, it's unbelievable. Hi, everybody. Welcome to uh, More to Know. I think it's time to roll it. More to know. Sponsored by Oxford Gold Group. Call today to learn how you can protect your retirement and savings account. 833-600-GOLD. That's 833-600-GOLD. Yeah, here we go. Uh, Let's talk about that. That's what James Corden was talking about, and that is uh, a guy that I don't get, Pete Davidson. Uh, He's skinny, he's pale, he's got tattoos, uh, but evidently that's what women want. Kate Beckinsdale, I guess who dated him, was older than him, uh, gave a subtle hint as to why she and several other Hollywood beautiful women became smitten with David Davidson. The Pearl Harbor star liked a repost of a tweet this week. says, I love how every time Pete Davidson starts dating another beautiful celebrity, everyone's like, uh, WTF, it's happening. How did he do this, and what is the mystery? Everybody refused to entertain the possibility that he might have a nice personality. Okay, that's right. See, all women aren't shallow. Yeah, that's good. Kim Kardashian, they were holding hands, but they're just friends. What are we to believe? But apparently they said they looked genuinely affectionate. Genuinely? Genuinely affectionate. Right. Um, and who was the other one? Ariel Grande? He was actually... Ariel, they were engaged, and then he, um, some other supermodel, and then the um, actress from Bridgerton he was sort of dating for a while, That's too. That's incredible. Good luck with him. Next, Aaron Rodgers is a liar, according to Stephen A. Smith. Listen. Aaron Rodgers is a liar, period. He lied through his teeth with a smirk on his face and regarding a matter that is very, very serious. Okay, you lied about that, so what else did you lie about? Lie about Gutekind? Lied about what was going on with the Green Bay Packers. What else you been lying about? Because you did it with such ease, such fluidity. And it was slick as hell. Yeah, I mean, you know. You take the Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, all right? According to the NFL, that means you're not considered vaccinated. You knew this, but never said anything. Yeah, uh, Stephen A. Smith, the voice of sports, uh, called him out. It looks like he said I was immune, but he never said he was vaccinated. Then he got the virus. Uh, we'll be, he'll miss this weekend, and it'll be fine. The whole mandate thing is a joke anyway. You're going to tell me that everyone in the NBA, 100% of all these teams are all vaccinated, LeBron included? Forget it. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the Fox, Fox News, News Radio, Radio Studios, Studios in New York City, finish off giving the you set of opinions and friends. It's America's receptive voice. It's Brian, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hope you have a good, uh, big plans over the weekend. Uh, I know I do. I'll be on the road in uh, Lawrenceville today in Georgia uh, at the Books a Million. Please meet me out there for the exact address. Go to BrianKilmeade.com. Uh, if you're not in Georgia, I hope to meet you in Lexington, Kentucky on Saturday. Uh, and then on Sunday, we have some tickets left in West Virginia, Charleston, West Virginia. I'm going to drive from Lexington uh, to 
Uh, I'm going to drive from Lexington over to Charleston all about the president and freedom fighter Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and the battle to save America's soul. In a time in which everybody is attacking our history, I think it's time to learn more about it. And then you have deep opinions and discussions about it. That's uh, a little bit later. I'm going to talk to Reed Gregory about his days at Notre Dame. He just graduated. Already wrote a book. Martha McCallum's son. Uh, what a great story this walk-on is and what he learned from being a signal caller and playing at Notre Dame. Coming up now is John McCorder, an associate professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia. He wrote a book, Woke Gross Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. You're going to love this interview. Here's John McWhorter. I thought they didn't teach critical race theory until they went to, like, law school or something. That's right. I sure hope not, because I'm not certain seven-year-olds need to learn it. I would like black kids to be completely empowered, to know that they are beautiful in their blackness. Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, I don't have to make white kids feel bad for being white. So somehow this is a conversation that has gone in the wrong direction. And she got a lot of backlash from that, and I do, do not know why. That is the former Secretary of State, the first female black Secretary of State, uh, one of the smartest people in the country, uh, also the most practical. And I thought that she grew up in the South, and she's talking about somewhere, someone who said couldn't go to a movie theater until she was a certain age, uh, buses. She grew up in the segregated South. No one gave her an easy life. She just happened to be unbelievably successful. Uh, John McCorder uh, is with us right now. He's an associate professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University and author of a book you got to get. It's called Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. John, great to talk to you. Thanks for having me, Brian. So what prompted you? I know you've been talking about this. What made you feel as though you should write a book about this? Well, it's just gotten to the point since about June 2020 with the racial reckoning that we've been having since the murder, and I do think it was a murder of George Floyd, where a certain kind of person is saying that what the racial reckoning means is that we're going to teach white Americans that their natural state should be one of guilt about racism past and present. And we're going to teach black people that our role is to cheerlead as white people settle into this and to think of ourselves as eternally victims of white racism, with that being the most interesting thing about us. And that if you don't agree with that agenda, it's not that you don't agree, but that you're some kind of moral pervert who wants to deny that racism or slavery ever happened. And I think that's wrong. I think that what happens is that the people who say this are clearly wrong to most of us, but they scare you because if you don't agree with them, they call you a racist on social media. And so I'm seeing a great many very educated, kind, well-intentioned people standing around pretending to agree with this kind of misguided zealotry, and it's becoming just what smart people in America are supposed to do. I won't have it, and I figure if it takes a black person to, to say it and have somebody halfway listen, then I'm going to write a book as a duty to make it clear that there are different ways of addressing racism in this country than this kind of kabuki play acting with people with pitchforks basically hurting people, running around making people cry in the name of this prosecutorial ideology, which – this is the crucial thing – isn't necessary to black success. There are other ways of making it so black America can succeed. This new fashion is not it. How do you feel about what Condoleezza Rice said on The View a couple of weeks ago? She's dead right, and the problem with people's reception of it is that there is a movement in the educational establishment for children of taking 
ideas derived from critical race theory, such as you know, white people on top, black people on the bottom, watch out, guilt, etc. That sort of thing is being taught in public schools and an awful lot of private schools. It's very much in the news. A lot of people turn their head away from this and think that someone like me is just talking about some little tempest in a teapot. Now, it's true that legal theory from 1981, the original critical race theory papers, are not being taught in schools, but that's not what we mean anymore. We mean the basic underpinnings of the ideology. And Condoleezza Rice is not crazy to refer to that. I'm not crazy to gather the news stories and the countless anecdotes I have from schools in practically every state of this country saying that that sort of thing is influencing the way things are being taught. But the thing is, if you call that out, many people think it means you're not battling racism, so you're supposed to pretend that it isn't happening. But it is, and I don't want my children affected by it, and I don't want this country's intellectual culture to be based on that one thing. It's not that that one thing isn't true, that you know, there was slavery, there was racism, and there's still some now. But for that to be the main thing that an education is about instead of teaching people to think, I say no. I, as a black person, do not need that transformation on the behalf of black people who need help, and neither do they. So a lot of people listen and say, well, what's the downside of maybe tilting the playing field more towards uh, blacks as opposed to the whites had it too good for too long anyway? If we overcorrected, we overcorrected. So what? Well, the thing is, we were already doing that. I wouldn't say that we were overcorrecting it, but the idea that America has stood by over the past 50 years and pretended that the past hadn't happened is utter and complete fiction. There's a way of talking about this that literally sounds as if the person is writing from the vantage point of 1960 instead of 2021. There's been plenty of acknowledgement. There's been plenty of affirmative action. There have been plenty of scholarships. There have been plenty of black people in very high places. There's been plenty of black people completely penetrating the entire American media. All of these are wonderful things, but they are acknowledgement. And so the playing field has been tilted, just affirmative action. I get the feeling people under about 40 aren't sure what an exotic thing that was when it happened in the 60s. That isn't something that had really happened anywhere else on Earth. So when it's done right, it's a very wise policy. That's tilting the playing field. Now, how much do you want to tilt it? Do you want to tilt it so much that a white man has a hard time getting any kind of plumb position because the idea that everything has to be given to black people regardless of qualifications or with qualifications placed way in the background? Once again, that's a case. I'd like to hear it laid out, but the people who are in favor of this don't lay it out. They just say words like equity and intersectionality and racial reckoning and figure that they've made the case, and everybody's afraid of them because if you say that they're not right, you get called a racist on Twitter. That won't do. I think that the way we were handling these things from roughly the late 60s until about last night made sense. It's this new thing that is extremist and unnecessary and cruel which I think somebody needs to stand up and say something about. Not that I'm the only one, but I want to be one of the people who is standing and saying, this, this doesn't work. This isn't wisdom. Uh, talking to Professor McCorder, who wrote Woke Racism, how religion has betrayed, uh, how a new religion has betrayed a black, black America. Overall, uh, Professor, as you look at what's happening in this country, people look back in the 60s and said, well-intended, but while helping out with these social programs, you help destroy the black family unintentionally. How do you feel about that? Well, it's true to an extent, and I hate to say it because there are people who say it 
who I'm not allied with. I am not a hard right person. I've never come from that particular direction. I don't believe that race is something we need to completely get over. I'm not from that. Nevertheless, welfare was expanded in the late 60s, and that was another way that the playing field was tilted. The idea was to help poor black women by teaching black women to sign up for welfare benefits when ordinarily they wouldn't have. And that did two things. It did mean that fewer black people lived in abject poverty. That's true. Instead, the people who lived in abject poverty were just poor. But then on the other hand, it did mean that fatherlessness, not growing up with your dad, became instead of one way that you might grow up poor and black, which it always had been, became a norm in a great many black communities. That norm that you know, it was hard to even imagine having not existed by the 80s is something that began in the late 60s. And so, yes, you need to have welfare, but it was overdone, and it did destroy a lot of black communities. And the thing is, you can hear that said by plenty of people who lived in those communities and who live in them now, including pastors and ministers. This is not just some think tank talking point. It's just not something that people want to talk about in the intelligentsia. But the intelligentsia is just one sliver of society, and very few of them are the ones suffering from the effects of racism the way other people are. So how do you mm-hmm. process people who say, you know, I keep reading about Frederick Douglass and uh, Booker T. Washington and the slave culture, and there was four million in America. Uh, man, this, this country, uh, this is not right, and uh, I'm angry about all that. What do you do with that anger? Yeah, your anger should be placed in things that are affecting you and other people right here in the present, with the idea being that what you do about the anger is that you change things in a way that creates real change. If the anger is about shaking your fist at white racism and especially aiming it at the past as if the past can see you or hear you, all of that is great, but it's theater. We're encouraged to think that being on the side of black people involves a certain kind of performance. And what people really need to think about is to walk around today, especially if you're a middle-class or affluent black person, and those two types of black people are by no means rare today. It's common to be a middle-class black person. In fact, you could argue it's the norm. If you're a middle-class black person, you walk around saying that because of, say, microaggressions, you are living in a racist country that shapes your entire psychology and you've got your fist stuck up in the air. You're, you're dishonoring your ancestors. You're dishonoring probably your grandparents who went through the real thing. And what's interesting, and nobody ever quite has an answer to this, as often as not, your grandparents didn't walk around with the attitude that you did. The idea was to make the best of things, to be constructive. You know that there's injustice, and sometimes it's even you who's suffering it, especially if it's 1955. And you try to make the best of it, and you make concrete solutions. It's today that you walk around angry and often police people's language and cheer when people get fired for saying something like reverse discrimination or something like that. Something's gone wrong, and it's because people in 1955 searched for real solutions to real problems, and they eventually found them, and that's how the 60s happened. Today, we're trying to continue the struggle, but the problems are more abstract, and yet we're encouraged to be just as angry as the people were back before and to call what we're dealing with racism as if 1955 is still here. When what we're really dealing with is legacies and complexities and subtleties. I don't see it happening, and I want to get us back to it. After the break, more with Mr. McQuarter. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade. 
It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. John McCorder is our guest, associate professor of English. He wrote for the book, Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Portrayed Black America. So in Virginia, when we see what's happening now, when these parents are saying, I don't want my kid coming home saying I'm inherently racist or bad or an oppressor, and they're saying it as far as third or fourth grade, are they on to something? Yes. It's something that's happening all over the country, and I'm not somebody who's looking for an issue. I'm not trying to rally a certain kind of person by my side. It's something that I started seeing mushrooming after the summer of 2020 with this racial reckoning. It's more extreme in some places than others. The most colorful examples you see are in private schools because they have more room to turn the whole curriculum upside down. But it's also happening to an extent in public schools. It's absolutely permeating the philosophy that's given to people in schools of education, and and anybody who doesn't know that may be pardoned for not you know, following that sort of thing with their eyes on the news pages, but it's painfully evident. And we're really insulting a lot of parents and saying that any parent who has a kid who comes home talking about that stuff and then complains about it publicly is really some kind of bigot who wishes that in school nothing was taught about slavery and racism as if everybody were back in the time of the little rascals. That's just not true. I know too many Democratic, liberal, even leftist and white parents, people my age, people a generation younger, who tell me I can't believe this stuff that my kids are picking up in school. And these are not peculiar people, and a lot of them send their kids to public schools. This is real, and anybody who says that it isn't, frankly, has a certain agenda, and that agenda is often that you have to talk about racism above um, and beyond anything else. Sometimes, though, that's not what's going on because in a way – Subverting an education to teaching this kind of ideology is racist, too, and making black people into objects and teaching black people to think of themselves as less powerful than we are. So these are discussions that we need to be had, and it cannot be shut down by simply crying racism whenever a certain kind of overeducated person doesn't like the cut of someone's jib. That's not the way to have a society. Nice. I would love the way you said that. So in terms of overall, this is what you also have. You're dealing with race. I get it. But it's not just with race. Everyone's dealing with wokeism, whether it's Dave Chappelle, who's got to see if he still has a career. We all know he does. We see Bill Maher as left as a liberal spokesperson for 25 years, now saying he's upset from what he sees, as has to do with the pandemic on down. Joe Rogan, the most powerful podcaster in the country, said this. You can never be woke enough. That's the problem. It keeps going. It keeps going further and further and further down the line. And if you get to the point where you capitulate, where you agree to all these demands— it will eventually get to straight white men are not allowed to talk. Right. Because it's your privilege to express yourself when other people of color have been silenced throughout history. We just got to be nice to each other, man. And there's a lot of people that are taking advantage of this weirdness in our culture, and then that becomes their thing. Their thing is calling people out for their privilege, calling people out for their position. You know, it's uh, crazy times. Yeah, I, I think he nailed it, right? I mean, I have nothing to add, and a lot of people would say, well, Joe Rogan you know, makes his living doing this podcast. He's painting in broad strokes. No, 
everything he said was absolutely true. There's a certain kind of person who, with the best of intentions, and they're often very nice people, as I say in the book, with the best of intentions, what they really are seeking is for white men, and especially straight white men, to shut up. They would be quite happy if a white man decided, I have no right to express my opinion about any of these matters at all, and I will give people of color anything they ask for. That is the goal, and I'm not exaggerating either. And I think all of us know that despite the hideousness of America's past and even grimy things that happen now, that that solution is something out of some communist playbook, out of some Martian playbook, out of some education school circa 1975 playbook that has nothing to do with how a mature society should operate, whatever the nature of the past was, and even if the people who suffered most were descendants of African slaves. We all know that that doesn't make sense. And my book is about how we need to stand up. And the idea is not to try to chase these people out of the room. They should be in the room giving us their perspectives, but not standing up and yelling. They can't be the ones who call all the shots. We need those people to go back to where they were two years ago, which is they were one of many people at the table making suggestions in edgy fashion, but not running the show by calling us racists on Twitter with everybody then bowing down and pretending to agree. And, and I think that now that we're coming out of the pandemic, we're beginning to realize something has gone wrong, and I hope my book is caught the moment. Uh, no, I think you absolutely have, because there's things that you say that nobody else can. And and the way you go at it and the way you could surround an argument while attacking the issues that are in the news, I'm trying to tackle that on a daily basis. Tell me if you if you could buy this analogy. I think the American people just want a level playing field. Plow the field. Let me compete, but don't fix the outcome. Don't give me a two-goal lead or a two-goal deficit. Just let me compete. Yes, anybody who really likes themselves would be fine with that. And I would add very briefly something else. The playing field might not be absolutely perfectly level. In no place in human history has it ever been. Leveler, sure. But yeah, don't fix the game. No self-respecting person wants that to be the condition. Unless you're watching WWE, in which in point you act surprised every time the outcome scripted. <laughs> uh, listen, congratulations on the book. It's going to be great. It's going to be a runaway hit. I look forward to talking to you about it. Uh, and I've listened to you before. I listened with Megan Kelly's podcast. Always interesting and insightful. Uh, John McWhorter, go pick up his book, Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Portrayed Black People. John, thank you. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Fast as three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, you know, it's an exciting week. Uh, the President of Freedom Fighters out. It's been two years in the works. Uh, and it's one of these things where I didn't have a ton of shoots to do around it. So I wasn't talking to a lot of people about it. So it's almost odd to me to talk to other people about stuff I've been studying uh, for the past couple of years, assembling quotes, and also the stage show, uh, which I'm going to be in West Virginia November uh, November 7th. At night, the special is going to air at 10 o'clock. The president and freedom fighter, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America's soul. But I wanted to see if I could put together a package to give you an idea, being that I'm in a visual medium from 6 to 9 every day on Fox and Friends, of what the book's about. And it actually, the more you learn, the more you... Uh, are able to absorb because you know more about the characters, where they're going, and what they've experienced. So here's a look at what you get if you pick up the president and the freedom fighter. The American Civil War. Over 600,000 would die over the course of four years. 
for the United States to survive, then reunify, and become for the first time a nation free for all, they would need extraordinary leaders. Two emerged above the rest, Abraham Lincoln, the president, Frederick Douglass, the freedom fighter. Together, they would make America a more perfect union. America has been blessed to have the right people at the right time. I mean, think back to those days in the Civil War where brothers literally fought blood brothers. Fathers fought their kids because they wanted the Declaration of Independence and this notion that all men were created equal to be real. In Abraham Lincoln, you had a person with the odds stacked against him. Bill, how can a young man born to illiterate parents in abject poverty with only one year of formal education emerge as one of America's perhaps best presidents who would lead us through a war and emancipate all enslaved people? Well, he was an amazing person. I guess today we'd call him gifted. Uh, he had a vision. He had ambition. As tough as Abraham Lincoln's first 14 years were, Frederick Douglass had it a whole lot worse. He was born a slave. He had to escape to establish his freedom, but he wasn't satisfied with that. He would want freedom for himself and freedom for all. Once free from bondage, Douglass would relentlessly continue his self-education, be mentored by esteemed abolitionists, write a best-selling biography, start a newspaper, and be a lecturer known around the world. As flawed as America was for the African-American, he didn't want another country. He wanted to make his stand here, it, almost in biblical terms. He saw the promise of America, which is hard to do when you're being beaten. So Douglas's gift was he never let the slave owners own him. In the 1850s, as Douglas and Lincoln began to rise in stature, miles apart, America was coming apart. The North and South were diverging on the issue of slavery. The status quo would not stand, paving the way for the emergence of a new party, the Republican Party, seizing the opportunity of one-term congressman, lawyer from the Midwest, Abraham Lincoln. The rail splitter from Illinois would grab the nomination and presidency, but by the time he arrived at the White House, seven states had left the Union. For Lincoln, secession was not an option. The war was on. He took over a divided country. Did he actually know what he was getting into? I don't think so, but Lincoln knew the law and he knew the Constitution about backwards and forward. And so he realized when, after Fort Sumner happened and that a lot of the country wasn't accepting him as president, then he correctly diagnosed union, 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 keep the country together, and then the abolition of slavery as the two grand causes of the Civil War. As for Frederick Douglass, Lincoln's win was all about hope. But when he didn't immediately free the slaves and messaged appeasement in exchange for reunification, Frederick seethed. The whole story is that progress takes patience. Douglas should have been, rightfully so, angry at the lack of progress, pushing Lincoln to move as quickly as possible. But at the same time, you have to admire and respect Lincoln's patience. The White House looks a lot like it did back in 1860 when Abraham Lincoln was president. You could line up on that porch and hope the president would see you one-on-one. -on -one. That's exactly what Frederick Douglass decided to do. He wouldn't have to wait long. Lincoln was smitten with Douglass. He knew that he was a, a prophetic figure. He knew that he carried some baggage with him politically, but he wanted to meet Douglass. After the initial meeting, a bond was formed. Lincoln released the Emancipation Proclamation. Douglas traveled the nation, recruiting blacks into the army for the first time. The most prolific unit 
the 54th Massachusetts Infantry. One of the beauties of that recruitment effort included his own two sons who served in the 54th. I was amazed at how important the American flag was. When they were being shot at, the African-American holding the flag doesn't want it to touch the soil because it was so important to defend our flag because it was defending our nation. Lincoln and Douglas would meet a total of three times face to face, and together they would help Lincoln win re-election. Douglas would be a special guest at his inaugural. The Union would go on to win the war, free an entire race from slavery, and allow our nation to reunite. With so much work left to do, together, John Wilkes Booth's assassination robbed Frederick Douglass of a partner to do that work with, and America of its greatest president at a time of our greatest need. Frederick Douglass would outlive Abraham Lincoln by 30 years, staying here in Rochester, New York, until 1872. His major mark on American history came alongside our 16th president. Individually, they were great men. Together, they were unstoppable. So I hope you I hope you like the book. You have to just understand this. No one will ever justify our, our past in slavery, but just know we didn't have the market cornered on slavery. It was not the colonist idea. I got this great idea. Let's take uh, let's take a whole group of people and, and make them work for us for free and treat them horribly and break up their families. It was happening on every continent on the planet. We had estimated 350,000 slave owners, about 7 million there. About 200,000 fought in the North for their freedom after being emancipated, and they fought with such gallantry. I think that began to do tremendous uh, things in terms of erasing racism in our country. Back then it was about freedom, then it was about equality, uh, and then we will hope to make it a racist-free society. That's our goal. But race remains in the news. That's why I thought that walk back, that look back, would only help you win the argument and win people over to understand how great this country is. Meanwhile, coming up next, a unique trip. I'm going to speak to Reed Gregory. He is one of the players, not a superstar at Notre Dame, but a standout player through high school, walked on, was able to get some time, but also become a key member of Notre Dame on and off the field. What it was like not to be a star in a pandemic year to go ahead and beat Clemson and make the playoffs and not be a star. What do you get out of sports if you don't do that? You get a lot, especially if you read Gregory and you have the headsets on calling the defensive plays, hearing everything they're saying, hearing how they coach, and also getting the player's perspective because you're one of them. He wrote a book right out of college along with his, uh, one of his uh, buddies, and he's actually the son of Martha McCallum. So uh, what an exceptional human being. You'll hear from him as he talks about his brand-new book, only on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Change is even coming here for the Fighting Irish. They're still working out the exact number, but they know for sure it won't be 80,000 fans. If there is an infection on campus, what will you do? Our contact tracing team will kick in to identify those who might have been in close contact with that person. We have isolation and quarantine space. That's just a little of what went on. Remember, the pandemic hit every single person listening to us right now, and we thought... Wow, this got real when the Dallas Maverick game was stopped and the NBA went on hold. Everything else followed. It was a matter of days. College football, too, I believe, was one of the first to come back. And Notre Dame, the first team to make it possible. That was Marianne Corr, Notre Dame's health, Notre Dame's health subcommittee chair. In the beginning, like everybody else, we didn't think this was going to be that big a deal. We heard about these other viruses. They never really affect us. Obviously, we're still dealing with now. 
That is something from his perspective that Reed Gregory, John Mahoney, put in perspective in a book they wrote after completing their senior year at Notre Dame. The name of the book is History Through the Headsets, Inside Notre Dame's Playoff Run During the Craziest Season in College Football History, Mostly Done Without Fans. Uh, Reed Gregory, John Mah- uh, Reed Gregory, welcome back. Or welcome to, I should say, uh, the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Hey, uh, Reed, in full disclosure, you're, uh, you're one of Martha McCallum's favorite sons. Is that correct? <laughs> one of, yes. Yes. So, so you went through this season at Notre Dame. You walked on and did almost the impossible. You played four years of college football at the, at the most storied school in football history. What made you want to try first off? Um, well, I loved playing uh, football in high school. It was one of my favorite sports. Uh, I had some offers from some other smaller schools, but Notre Dame was always my dream school. It's where I wanted to go. Um, and uh, obviously, it's in in the football world. It's it's the top university to play at, in in my opinion, and in many others' opinion. And uh, so I worked hard and trained, and uh, eventually made the team with with some help from many other people. Um, and I'm you know so thankful that I made the team, and and I wouldn't change it for anything. Uh, and you did you did get to play a little bit, and you also were calling the defensive signals, right? Yes, I got to play in a few games on uh, special teams, and um, I was the defensive signaler. I got that job my junior year. Uh, so basically the defensive coordinator was up in the box, and he would um, call in the plays to me and my co-writer, John Mahoney, um, and we would hear him on the headsets and signal them, signal the plays in to the, def- the defenders on the field. You write in your book that you thought your senior year of high school football was it. And, you know, John Mahoney knew, like, he was emotional at the end of his college career. You were more emotional at the end of your high school career. You thought it was over, but you made the team and had this incredible memory. What made you think to yourself, I got to put this down? I mean, here you are, 23, 24 years old, and you already have a book out, and you're in the real world, not wearing eye black anymore. What made you say, I got to put this, I got to write this? So it's a funny story. Um after Thanksgiving dinner, we had a team a team dinner, and John and I were speaking with our, um, our one of our coaches at the time, and he said, kind of jokingly, he said, you guys should write a book. You have such a unique perspective on the season as a whole. This season in particular was wild and crazy in many aspects, um, and, uh, you know, we just had an interesting point of view, and we joked about it, and then later in practice, I think the next week after thinking about it, me and John were just like, hey, you know, that's something we could definitely do. Um, so we, you know, went to the went to the bookstore, emailed all the publishers that we saw in the Notre Dame book section at the Notre Dame bookstore, uh, got some good responses, and uh, finally signed with Triumph Books, a sports writing company in Chicago. They've been extremely helpful, and um, we're very happy we did it because we can now we can relive those memories whenever whenever we would like. You know, if you're Tim Tebow. You know, if you're Herschel Walker, if you're Eddie Gregory, you know, who, you know, you star in, in college football. When, whenever you're done, everybody wants to do a book. But there's more people that aren't uh, outstanding Hall of Fame football, baseball, soccer players who have just as indelible experiences. And they think, well, I'm not going to tell that story. But what do you hope people get from your story, uh, from uh, Reed, not only you, but from John Mahoney? What's the perspective that you bring? Sure. So, um, like I said a little bit earlier, we wear the headsets on the sideline. And so we hear everything that the coaches are saying 
you know, all throughout the game. We know everything that's that's going to happen before it actually gets played out on the field. Um, and so what we hope people get from this book is uh, how much really goes into winning a college football game and what it's like on the sideline during the game. And uh, we try to, you know, bring that uh, as much as we can to, to the readers of this book uh, because we didn't think it was ever really talked about, um, the sideline perspective. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's what we hope people get out of it. What did you get out of the experience? I learned a lot about uh, how people work together, how, how players can learn uh, from others, how you know, there are effective coaches and less effective coaches. Um, and it's taught me a lot about you know, uh, time management, work ethic, and uh, it's really shapes the way that I live my life now. So I'm, I'm very happy with, with my experience. So then you factor in COVID-19. In the beginning, you write, uh, read, that you guys didn't take it serious. No one did. You shouldn't be uh, mm-hmm. ashamed of that. No one did. So if, tell me when you first realized this virus was an issue and when it was first brought up to you. So it's funny. We were all on spring spring break when uh, the students got the email from our president, Father Jenkins, to not return to campus. And like you said, at the time, no one was wearing masks. None of us really thought it was a big deal. No one really knew what it was or understood it. Um, and then we got an email from our uh, from Coach Kelly, our head coach, and he said, "Well, the football players are actually going to be coming back. Uh, we're we're, uh, we're going to keep practicing through it all." And uh, we were kind of a little bit put off by it because we didn't want to be the only ones on campus for such a long time. Uh, but then the next day, we uh, got another email saying, "Hey, this is actually a very serious thing, um, and the football players are not going to come back either." Um, and from that point, we all had to do our own work from home. We had online meetings with our different position groups. We had to check in daily using multiple different apps. We had to weigh in. We had to send videos of our workouts. Um, it was, you know, it was, it was a very difficult way to to coach a football team when everyone is in their own respective states. Um, so it was a very unique experience, and COVID definitely threw us through for a loop. But we were, you know, successful in our in our strategy to, to be able to have a, a, a college football season. And the discipline you guys had to show working out of your own, then when you got together to show the distancing and everything in order to mm-hmm. field the team and play, if Notre Dame doesn't go back, is there college football? In my opinion, no. I'm very happy that Father Jenkins and our, our athletics director, Jack Swarbrook, um, decided to to put out in public that Notre Dame will be playing college football. And because we were independent at the time, we needed to join a conference. So we joined the ACC, which um, helped um, helped us actually have a, a schedule. And I do believe that um, Father Jenkins and um, Jack Swarbrook releasing that statement gave other colleges the confidence to say, all right, we're going to play a season, you know, play a full college football season as well. The so highlight. I, believe Notre Dame is yeah, responsible I agree too. And the president definitely helped a lot too, by saying, come on guys, get back out there and then embarrass the, uh, the PAC 12 to play too. Uh, here's the moment that you write about in your book that you, you have a lot of indelible moments, but what about Notre Dame playing Clemson November 7th, 2020. Williams, the back next to book. Third and goal for Notre Dame. And Russ playing coverage. Book on the road. He throws end zone. And it is caught for the touchdown by Davis. And we are on top. 33 with 22 on the clock at Notre Dame Stadium. Andrew Williams, the blocking. The tight ends on that side. To the goal line and in. Tyron Williams for a Notre Dame touchdown. Second and goal for the Irish out of the timeout. Williams right to the right side. How 
Powers to the end zone. And Kyron Williams scores again for Notre Dame. What would that mean to be Clemson? <laughs> I'm smiling over here on my side of the line. Uh, it meant so much to, to be Clemson, to be Clemson at home particularly. Um, you know, we had done so much uh, adjustments-wise through COVID and everything to get to that point, and it was really just a special moment. Um, it was a special game. We, everyone played extremely hard. We prepared so well for that game. Um, and then at the end of it, all of the students storming the field was uh, such an amazing feeling. Um, I found my brother somehow in the in the mosh pits of, of people, as well as my college roommates, and um, it was it's a feeling that I probably won't ever feel uh, anything like it again. But uh, it was it was truly something special. Uh, Reed Gregory, uh, along with John Mahoney, wrote the book History Through the Headsets Inside Notre Dame's Playoff Run During the Craziest Season in College Football History. I cannot believe you have a book written as you get your first job out of college. Congratulations on this, Reed. I know it's going to be a big success, as you will be uh, in the real world, where you don't get tackled or hit anymore. (laughs) Yep. Thanks so much, Brian. I appreciate it. You got it. Reed Gregory, thanks. Pick up his book, History Through the Headsets. It's fantastic. Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.